Thanks, Tom. I've already preached on Romans 8. I didn't want to do that one again. (laughs) Romans 12. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please uh, open our eyes this morning to see what response we should make to what you've done in Jesus and help us to prayerfully consider how we might uh, encourage each other to make right responses and right choices uh, to aid ourselves, to help others and to use our gifts. Amen. Uh, here's two guys. Uh, anyone know their names? Jamie, do you know their names? Anyone? No? Okay, it's a bit hard. Does Dad know their names? Oh, you're English, you wouldn't know. <laughs> We've got Jim Cahill. Yeah, he's playing on Tuesday night. It's his last game for Australia. And uh, if he'd have been there last night, we would have won. He would have got a header in. He did. Uh, and the other guy is, yeah, Burn Atomic. That's who that is. Uh, both professional sports people, uh, both highly paid, uh, both surrounded by physios and um, uh, sports psychologists and trainers, uh, both physically fit men, uh, both elite players, both have represented their countries. Uh, but their attitudes differed. Both ended in their careers the moment. One put in the effort when he felt like it and let sort of lifestyle dictate how he played and was known to tank or to give up at times. And just, you know, if the match was too hard, you walk away from it. Uh, The other would die for his country. The other was so committed. uh, He fought to the end every game and encouraged others to do the same. You could say both committed themselves to their respective sports, but really only one of them was truly and deeply committed. When we turn to the book of Romans today after a short break, we come to a passage where Paul starts off with the words, therefore, which reminds us that something has happened beforehand that he's going to talk about. And the therefore is uh, a response to what he's just said in Romans chapters 1 through to 8. 9 to 11 are a little aside, but Paul talks about the, the role of Israel in God's plan, but up to uh, verse eight, uh, up to chapter 8, uh, Paul is giving us the basis for what he wants to talk about. So let's have a look this morning in some detail at those first two verses because they're very important for us. He uses words and images that are carefully chosen, and so we'll look at the words and look at the images. And he begins by talking about the basis for our belief. Now, I don't know if in primary school or in... Um, High school in PE classes, you made one of those human pyramids where kids knelt down and then you got on top of them and so on. Usually it was the bigger kids at the bottom and this was their chance to shine. If they didn't do very well in PE and anything else, you could say you're the bottom and it's really important that you don't collapse because the kid up the top will break their arm. The bony kids seemed to get on next because they always sort of dug their knees and elbows into you and the little monkey of a kid got up the top and... uh, he was the one, if you didn't like him, you could sort of drop the whole pyramid and he'd fall down. Uh, but the basis was really important and often it was the kids at the bottom that you really encouraged to say, you've got to hold this up because if you collapse, everything else collapses around you. So we need a solid basis for going on in the Christian life. And Paul tells us what that basis is. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, basis for Christian living and ongoing uh, witnessing is the mercies of God, which he outlines 
in chapters 1 through to 8. He begins in chapters 1 and 2 telling us we're irredeemably and miserably lost. We really can't find God. Uh, if, if we're heathens, well, we're looking in the wrong direction anyway. If we're Jews, we've missed the boat. And he sums up in chapter 3 with these words, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks God. And into this desperate situation, God provides a way through the death of Jesus so that we can be made right with God through faith. And chapters 4 and 5 are all about that. But given an incredible hope and a bright and glorious future, he concludes in chapter 8. These are the mercies of God, God reaching down to us and saving us. This is the basis. This is a theology on which we build everything else. Now, we saw it in our house party when we looked at uh, the book of Colossians. There again, Paul in chapters 1 and 2 outlines the theology. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is what he's like. In chapter 3, we start moving on to the application and the practical outworkings. So Paul writes, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts and minds on the things above. Not just airy thoughts about God, but on doing God things in this world. So put off the old self, put on the new, take up things like compassion and humility and kindness and so on. See, our call as Christians is to be fully and totally committed, which is made on the basis of massive goodness and grace of God. Here's the point. The greater our grasp and understanding of the mercies of God, the greater our potential for commitment. The more we understand about what Jesus has done, the more we think about that, the more potential we have to commit ourselves fully to what God wants us to do. As we grow in grace throughout our life, and we learn more and more about the person and work of Jesus, we'll want to be like him, his actions, his thoughts, his words. The world has conned us into thinking that the aim of life is happiness. Sitting behind two girls on the train the other day going to town, they were talking about all the fun that they were going to have. Well, life was about having fun with your friends and by yourself. That's not what life is all about. We've got to firmly and consciously reject that notion and contemplate what Jesus has done for us over and over and over again. And then we'll work out what life's all about. Isaac Watts puts it so beautifully in that hymn, Love so amazing, so divine. What does it do? It demands my life, my soul, my all. The goal of life, you see, is Christ's likeness. And the call here is, I urge you, it's much stronger in the original language. It's more like, uh, I require you. This is a right and proper response to what God has done for you. When you really think about it, there's no other option. The only option is to be fully committed to what Jesus has committed to you. That's the basis for our commitment. Second thing we look at is the character of commitment. What does that look like? Well, we read in these words again in these opening verses. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It takes us back to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where you offered um, 
something that was unspoiled as a sacrifice to God. And as you can see here, uh, the character is of total commitment. It's a living sacrifice. Uh, it's, it's offering your life, but it's a living life. It's not a dead life. It's not a dead body. The word body here is not just describing skin and bones. It's a totality of who you are. Living, you have a newness of life in Christ. Holy, it's a life purged of sin. Acceptable, you're only acceptable because of Jesus' death for you. So the call here is for full and total, complete allegiance to Jesus. And it's a logical thing to do. It says here the proper or the spiritual is another translation. A right response is that we have Jesus as our head and we follow him and we worship him and we do what he tells us to do. You can't really be a believer and look at this verse and have a heart-hearted approach to life and to being Christian. This is the only way to live, Paul says. So the basis of commitment, the mercies of God, the character of commitment, total and logical. What about the demands? What does God ask of us? Well, he says we need to do some things. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world. That's the first command. The second, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice one's negative, like a putting off, and the other ones are putting on, like that Colossians passage. Do not be conformed. Again, the original word he has the idea of scheming. Uh, and the word world's not just the planet and its people. It's got the idea of this evil age. Hebrew thought had this idea of the two ages, this age, which is evil and ending, and the age to come, which was eternal, going on forever. And the thought here is, uh, don't be conformed to the schemes of this passing evil world. Now, none of us escapes that because it's right in front of us. We live in it. We're always being subtly sucked in by it and influenced by it. So we need to be critical in our thinking of the lifestyle choices that we make. From the presuppositions behind shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, Married at First Sight, we need to be critical and ask questions about those kinds of things. To kids playing sport, we need to ask those sorts of questions. To the uh, products we purchase, to our work practices, all of these things we need to look at in the light of the gospel before secular culture sweeps us along and it's tired. We just do what everyone else is doing. That's a negative, don't conform. But there's a positive, be transformed. Greek word is metamorphia, which we get our word metamorphosis. You know, that change from a caterpillar to a butterfly or a tadpole to a frog. But the Bible's use of this term goes even beyond that. This word is only used four times in the New Testament, once in 2 Corinthians, which was read for us. The other two times are in the Gospel describing the same event, Jesus' transfiguration on the mount. Remember he went up there with uh, Peter, James and John and uh, Jesus is transformed. The skin and bones uh, shine. There's an inner presence that comes through. His face shines. He, his clothes are dazzling white. He's transfigured or transformed. He says Christ fills us. There's a metamorphosis that goes on in our lives. We, we keep the same form but there's a change that shines through our life and that's going to get brighter and brighter as we grow in grace. So that's why in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul can write these words. 
and we who are unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory. It's, it's growing all the time, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What a wonderful picture of a Christian. We could dim the lights now. We should be able to see glowing faces. How does this happen? By the renewing of your mind, by the Holy Spirit. So it's a no and it's a yes. No to the passing schemes of this world. Stand up to them, call them for what they are. And yes to the Holy Spirit building a life of Christ in you. What are the effects of all these things? Well, let's have a look. These words written, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. With full and total commitment comes the ability to know what God wants. Not that you can work out who you're going to marry in the future or you can work out whether your finances are going to be okay. What you'll work out is what you read in the Bible about Jesus. The more you know him, the more you can sort of work out what his character is like and how you need to live. You can work out what's right and what's wrong. You don't have to guess all the time. And you know what a perfect life looks like because you've seen it in Jesus and you can start to act that way. So you learn more about Christ, you know the mind of God and then you can make true and wise decisions when you're totally committed. So when you're totally committed, you know where you're going. You have an assurance that the uncommitted, careless Christian does not have. Well, these are the effects. They're built, aren't they, on, on the demands, don't conform and be transformed, which in turn are built on the character of being truly committed, offering your bodies as living sacrifices, which has got that basis of the mercies of God, that strong basis of what God has done for us. So the most absurd thing you can do in life as a Christian is to have a half-hearted approach to your faith. That would be silly, considering what God has done for you. It just doesn't make sense in the light of what we've just read. Well, let's assume we're all full on. We're all, we're all, um, we're all on board with this. We're all committed now to following Jesus. Paul goes on and says, okay, if you like this, this is how you need to live. Let me give you three examples. He talks about ourselves. Have a look at verses 3 to 8. Let me read them to you again. For well, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith of God has distributed to each of you. Don't overestimate yourself, says Paul. Don't become a legend in your own mind. Don't brag about the gifts God's given you and don't walk around in pride. On the other hand, don't self-deprecate. Don't put yourself down and say you're a nobody and that you're not gifted and you're not as good as everybody else. Paul says, think of yourself with sober or sound judgment. Now, when you're drunk, you make some pretty stupid decisions and you think you're much better than you are, especially if you're singing karaoke. But you need to have a sober reflection, a sound reflection of who you are. Don't compare yourself with others but just compare yourself with the standard of Jesus. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who have a, a right attitude about themselves, 
are the blessed. It's really a call to humility, not boasting. So let's think rightly about ourselves. Once we've done that, we can work out how we fit into the church, into that company of believers. We see that in verse 4 and following. Well, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, Paul gives this illustration a couple of times in the New Testament, and it's a great one, isn't it? It talks about diversity and unity and wholeness. Um, we've got unity because as Christians we share the same spirit. The spirit of God lives in us. We, 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 we're united here as a church because God's spirit is making us become more like Jesus. We've got diversity. The great mark of nature is its diverseness. It's, it's different. Every snowflake is different and so on. Uh, and we see that in God's handiwork in the church as well. We're not all the same. We're all different. We're unique. We don't all have to dress, talk and walk like Stuart. It would be a bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? As we look to Christ the standard, we're liberated to be ourselves. We're free in Christ to be ourselves in relation to other selves. And as we do this, the whole body of believers benefits. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We, we, we suffer with those who are suffering. We encourage the weak and the weary. We uphold those in frontline ministries. We pray for them and talk to them. In other words, we share life together. And there's no better place in this church to do that than in a life group, which during the week. You really come to grips with each other as you read the word and you share life. Paul puts some flesh to this in verses 9 to 21. Let me read those verses to you. Love, he says, must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour another one above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That's how the church works. We do those things in life together. Don't ever think you can be a Christian and do it on your own. A call to be a Christian is a call to service and begins with the people of God. It's not an optional extra, it's just part and parcel of who you are. So knowing yourself, knowing that you're part of the body, then frees you to use the gifts that God's given to you. We see that in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is not an exhaustive list. There's a couple of lists in the New Testament and even then they're not exhaustive. There's, there's, there's probably more gifts that aren't mentioned there. I'm not going to go into any detail at all this morning with those gifts. I think that's a whole other talk. But all I want to say is that all need to be used humbly and for the benefit of others, not with pride nor with false humility. We are all gifted and we can all work out what those gifts are with the help of others and use them wisely in the church. So 
Let me sum up. Being a Christian is not an optional extra. In the light of what we've just read, it's a right response to the God who's rescued us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died for his faith in a, in a prison just before the end of World War II, said this, It's only because he became like us that we can become like him. And that's our aim, isn't it? Not the pursuit of happiness or power or prestige in this world, but rather an offer of ourselves as living sacrifice to God to pursue a life that's transfigured, a life that's lived for others, and a life that reflects the one who saved us. Up the back this morning on the, uh, the desk, uh, just up near the post boxes, is a sheet here, uh, which reminds us of how we might use our gifts and time and talents in this church. If you're not a partner, there's a bit there where you can uh, tick after you write your name saying, look, I'd like to join a life group and I'd like to do the partnership course so I can become fully involved. If you are a partner, then think about your gifts and work out how you might uh, serve others in this church by ticking some of those boxes. There's a bit down the bottom about how you might give. How are you going to use the treasure that God's given you to help benefit others in the church? It would be great if you could have a look at that and fill it in, either this week or next week, and pop it into the box at the back. So as a church, we might encourage each other with the use of the gifts and talents that God's given us. Also, up the back, and you've probably got one of these already, uh, Care and Connect card where you write down, you might want to ask a question about the talk or uh, write down something about a prayer that you'd like uh, prayed for or something else to ask about uh, the, the compassion event or whatever else is happening in the church. Again, please write your name on that and pop it in the box. I'm going to pray for us, then we'll have a chance to uh, write those things down and then we're going to sing our final song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that it opens our eyes to see what it costs Jesus in giving his life for us and a right response of full and permanent commitment to you. Please help us to have a right assessment of ourselves, right assessment of others and how we fit into the body of Christ and working out what our gifts are so that we might use them humbly for your service and to the good of others in our church and in the community. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.